Good morning. How's everybody today? Good. Happy 4th of July. I had to bring my computer today because I couldn't get my printer to actually print out what I needed. So bear with me a minute while I get it going here. I wanted to talk to you today about some signs. So let me just pull this up here. There we go. All right. So here's the first sign. Does anybody know what this sign is? Stop sign. Right. Okay. Let's see if we can get to the next one here. How about that one? Bathroom. Men's room, ladies' room. That's kind of an important one to know about, right? McDonald's. That's an easy one. Exit, right? That's always a good one to know, right? Oh, I'm sorry. I should show you guys, too. Uh, no swimming. Yeah, unfortunately, there will be no swimming today, I'm afraid. Crosswalk or school crossing. It could be either one, right? All right, let's see. Oh, poison. Yeah. Ugh. Could also be pirates, I guess. But How about this one? I know you know that one. Railroad crossing. We don't see that one too often around here. And Dairy Queen. All right. So we know what signs are. In the Bible times, there were signs too, but not like these. The people in Jesus' time were looking for signs. Actually, they've been looking for signs from day one. Right? Adam and Eve are still looking for signs. So we have the prophecies. And we have the fulfillment of the prophecies. And even though Jesus came and fulfilled these prophecies, saying, hey, I'm in. I'm the one you're waiting for. People were still like, hmm, I think I still need a sign. So Jesus healed. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure you're really the right one. And it, even at this point in our scripture, John the Baptist, who said, here he comes. Here's the one that's been promised. Saying, are you really the one? Just want to make sure. Because I think you are, but you're not quite doing things the way I thought you were going to do them. You know, um, I was looking for someone to be the king. And you're just kind of healing people like a doctor or teaching people like a teacher. Are you sure you're the king? And Jesus said, well, what else do you want me to do? You know, I'm healing the sick. I'm, I'm teaching. I'm um, filling the prophecy. You can see, you know the prophecies. You've been preaching those prophecies. But we know that those prophecies all pointed to Jesus. Because they say hindsight is twenty twenty, And we can look back and say, yeah, that's right. I remember. Because even when we're in situations, we don't always recognize the things around us. We don't always recognize God's hand in our life. We don't always under, understand why he's doing certain things. But when we look back, we see that, yes, that was definitely God or Jesus 
making himself known in our lives. Those were signs pointing to the fact that he is truly God. So I have two more signs to help us remember. I have the cross to help us remember that he died for us. But I have one more that I think is even better. The empty tomb. Because he didn't stay dead. He's coming back. And that is a pretty amazing prophecy that will be fulfilled. I believe it, and I know you do too. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the signs that you've given us of your love, of your compassion, your healing touch. Thank you for being willing to come to this earth to live among us, to show us how we should live. And thank you for being willing to die for our freedom so that we could be free from the sinful life that we have found ourselves in. And we thank you that you didn't stay dead, that you rose from the grave triumphant, and you're coming back for us. So we thank you for that, and we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Lord, we want to hear your word. We want to choose your word. We want to live your word. Please help us to do that, starting and continuing today. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning's sermon is called Just Checking, and it seems like a good time to describe a little bit of my process when I get ready for Sunday mornings. I start the week on Tuesday, because Monday's my day off, and I try to get as much information as I can to Sandy so she can put the bulletin together, and we get the music from Sue usually, and we, we put things together, and I start to write the sermon, and I already know what the scripture passage is going to be, but the, the way the sermon starts on Tuesday and the way that it ends up on Sunday morning before I come here, because I usually rewrite it on Sunday morning, <laughs> um, is usually totally different, and so a lot of times the title that I come up with on Tuesday doesn't really match what I end up preaching on Sunday, and I think that kind of illustrates fairly well the fact that preparation for any event, Sunday morning service or any event, is necessary for that event to happen, but the event doesn't look like the preparation. If it did, it wouldn't actually be the event. It would still just be part of the preparation. Um, we can see this happens in other things, too. If you're going to have a special guest come to your house, you're going to clean your house, you're going to get things ready, you're going to make sure that they feel welcome there. But if you're still cleaning your house and getting things ready and scrubbing the toilet while they are walking in the door and sitting there having a snack, um, you're still that's not the event. <laughs> you're still preparing. Um, it's, your event should not look like your preparation. Um, even though you need that preparation to have the event. Um, I would like to invite Ray up here for a second. Um, you can use that mic if you want, Ray. I think we could also say that some preparation had to go into um, Independence Day, right? Absolutely. So do you want to give us a few examples of some of the preparation that happened before we could celebrate American Independence?
13 colonies that belong to England. It was the whole East Coast, basically, of what is now the United States of America. And as time went on, we became uh, increasingly unhappy. Especially one of the colonies, this faraway place called Massachusetts. We were the worst troublemakers of the 13. So we started to prepare to break away from England, and of course the English got wind of it, and they said, oh, well, where are they storing all these arms and uh, gunpowder? And it was this little village outside of Boston. So they said, well, we'll march up there and we'll take it away from them. So <laughs> when they got to Lexington, they were a little surprised that there there were a group of farmers and shopkeepers all lined up, willing to fight it out with the regulars. Well, they literally were unorganized, and they were farmers and shopkeepers up against British regulars. So uh, I got to admit, that first battle, it didn't go very well for our side, and we took a look at it. Then they decided that they couldn't find the stuff, so they turned around and head back towards Boston. But by opening fire on our men, uh, they set off a fuse they did not realize. And there was another group waiting for them at the Concord Bridge. And we did a tune on them there. They killed 40 of our guys, but we killed over that and wounded 100 more at the same bridge. And they were almost in disarray, and they kept running back towards Boston. And Minutemen and militia just poured out of the woodwork and kept hounding them all the way back. And that set off something that could not be reversed, the American Revolutionary War. Seven years later, and a lot of lives lost, we won, and now we have the freedoms we enjoy every day. But were they prepared? Uh, they were trying. They were trying, but it was pretty tough. And uh, that's why I dress funny on occasion. Uh, well, it doesn't seem funny when I'm hanging out with my fellow colonials, but I know I probably look kind of funny to you, but that's all right. It doesn't bother me when I own it. It's perfect today. <laughs> Thanks, Ray. <laughs> so, um, you may know, I actually lived in England for over five years, so I, I have... I have some loyalties to England, but the point is, certain things had to happen, um, some victories, some defeats, but certain things had to be set in place, including the document we call the Declaration of Independence. All of those things had to happen first before we could have the country that we live in today. Okay, so today we are re-encountering in our scripture passage a person that we've already met in this series and that you've probably heard of before. Um, John the Baptist is how he's usually known. He wasn't a Baptist like we're Baptists. There wasn't a Baptist denomination back then. Um, sometimes translations now will call him John the Baptizer, just to make it a little less confusing. I'll probably go back and forth with both of those terms. Um, but So who is... John the Baptist, what do we know about him um, that we've maybe even mentioned in the sermon series or that you know off the top of your head? Just call out some things about him. So, yes, he's related to Jesus. He ate bugs. Right. Yes, he dressed funnier than you, Ray. 
He was a prophet. Okay, which is he got his head cut off. Right, that hasn't happened yet at this in this story, but we're gonna get there. His birth was a miracle. Yep. Yes, that's really important, actually, for this. Um, when John was in his mother's womb, and Jesus was in his mother's womb, and the two mothers encountered each other, little preborn John leapt for joy and recognition of who Jesus was from inside his mother. He already knew who Jesus was. So, that makes today's story more significant because in this story, if you heard what Bernice was reading, John, this same John, is asking Jesus, are you really the one we were supposed to be expecting? He knew Jesus was the one before he was even born, before either of them were even born. But now he is doubting. So we need a little bit of context. Why is this the case? John the Baptizer is in prison. We saw at the beginning of this series, um, he baptized Jesus, and Jesus went into the desert to be tempted by Satan. And while Jesus was in the desert, John got arrested and put in prison, and he's still in prison. Or maybe he's in prison again, but it's likely he's still in prison. He never saw for himself any of the messianic goings-on that Jesus was doing. Um, N.T. Wright has a translation of the New Testament called the New Kingdom Translation, and he translates this verse, the first, or the second verse of our chapter. John, who was in prison, heard about these messianic goings-on. He sent word through his own followers. Are you the one who is coming, he asked, or should we be looking for someone else? He's heard about the messianic goings-on, but he has not seen them, and he doesn't recognize them as things that the Messiah, the promised Messiah, who he's been preparing for, should be doing. Here's an interesting point. He doesn't actually doubt his own calling. He doesn't doubt that he's been doing the right thing. He doubts whether he's done it for the right person. So the next five weeks of this sermon series, um, it's a big, long sermon series that's taking most of the year, but we've already gone through two kind of sections of the Gospel of Matthew. This is the beginning of the third section, and in this section, we're going to see, we're going to be zeroing in on people's expectations of Jesus or and or of the Messiah. And... They have different responses, and we'll see that over the next couple of weeks. But of all the people that we're going to look at, we might expect the one to be the most on board with who Jesus is to be this guy, John the Baptizer. Because, like we said, they're related. He knew who the Messiah was as an unborn baby. And he knew that his entire reason for existing, his entire reason for being born, the entire reason he was a miracle baby was so that he could prepare the way for the promised Messiah. And he's even in jail for this mission. Which would be one thing if Jesus were acting like the decisive, patriotic, military Messiah John thought that he was preparing the way for. John is in jail specifically because he challenged King Herod. King Herod 
referred to himself or thought of himself as the king of the Jews. And John has challenged him because, first of all, he's super immoral. Herod's super immoral, the whole family. This isn't the same Herod we talked about when we talked about the wise men, but it's a son of his. Um, they were all a mess, and none of them deserved to be king of anything. And so John is in jail for challenging him, and he challenged him because it is John's job to prepare the way for the real king of the Jews. But John has most likely, by this point, been in prison for an entire year. Jesus has been doing something, but he hasn't yet overthrown Herod. He hasn't taken his rightful place as king of the Jews, and he hasn't gotten John out of jail. And he writes, says, John was expecting Jesus to be a man of fire, an Elijah-like character who would sweep through Israel as Elijah had dealt with the prophets of Baal. So he sends his disciples, since he can't go himself, to ask Jesus, was I wrong about you? John was not as wrong about the identity of the Messiah as he thought he was. And John was not as right about his own role and identity as he thought he was. John thought that, there, so there were prophecies about a coming Messiah. There were also prophecies that Elijah, who was one of the first prophets in Israel, who's super important, interesting story, fiery guy, actually didn't die, went to heaven in a fiery chariot. Um, everybody thought he was going to come back. There were prophecies about that too. And so John thought, most likely, that Elijah and the Messiah were the same person. In the Gospel of John, some Pharisees ask John who he is, and they say, are you the Messiah? And John says, no. Are you the prophet? No. Are you Elijah? No. But John was Elijah. Elijah and the Messiah weren't the same thing. John and Elijah were the same thing. John didn't even know it. John was expecting the Messiah, to be a little more like himself. The fiery, prophetic, speak plainly and oppose the government and take over your rightful throne. He was expecting the Messiah to be like him. And he was expecting the kingdom of heaven to look a little more like or be a little more about the Jewish nation. Sometimes, our own expectations of who God is, and what God is like, and what God is supposed to do, or is going to do, look an awful lot like us. And so, sometimes we find ourselves, it feels like we're kind of locked up somehow, we're imprisoned, we're hampered, we're stopped, we're unable to do the things that we know God has called us to do. This is true for us as individuals sometimes. Sometimes it's true for us as a church. Um, we know that God has something for us, and we are doing what we know we've been given to do, and it doesn't seem, we just seem like we're stuck. And sometimes the reason we're stuck is because of sin. That's a different sermon. That's not what we're talking about today. Sometimes, as in John's case, we know that we are being spiritually opposed because we are actually, in fact, doing exactly what God wanted us to do. This is the case for John. 
He's been doing all along exactly what God gave him to do. He's been doing his job. He's been the person God wanted him to be. To him to be. He's been doing the things God wanted him to do. He is not sinning here. He's not in jail because he sinned. He's in jail because he opposed the powers that be. This is sometimes what happens to us. But when it happens to us, just like for John... When our circumstances don't change for months or even for years, and the thing we believed we were preparing the way for, the, or pre- preparing the way for the Lord to do, doesn't seem to be happening at all, it is very tempting to ask God, Was I wrong about you? Is it okay to ask that question? Yes. John is asking the right question, and he's asking the right person the right question. When we are in a scary or sad or defeated or rejected situation, literally the best thing we can do is go to Jesus and ask him our honest or maybe hurt or maybe even doubtful questions And get his reassurance about who he is and who we are. John was not wrong, even though he wondered if he might be, about the person of the Messiah. The Messiah was and is and always will be Jesus. John was not wrong about his own task and assignment, which was to prepare the way for the Lord. What he was mistaken about was the nature of the Messiah and himself in the kingdom of heaven. He was expecting the Messiah to look like him, and he was expecting, probably without even realizing it, the event to look like the preparations. So, when when John's disciples go to Jesus and they ask, are you really the, the right guy? Jesus' answer must have seemed at first a little frustrating because Jesus tells John's disciples to tell John what it seems like they probably had already told him. The only difference in this situation is if you read this same story in the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us that Jesus, they ask Jesus the question and then Jesus goes and actually heals some people and casts out some demons so they see for themselves him doing this. And then Jesus says, look, tell John what you are seeing and what you've heard about the sick are being healed, the blind are able to see, the deaf are able to hear, the lame are walking, the dead are being raised. All of these stories Matthew has already told us in his gospel, by the way. We have examples of every single one except for, in this list, the deaf hearing, I think. Um, all of these other things we have examples of. And so Jesus says, tell John that. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. John is in danger of stumbling over the very Messiah he prepared the way for because his own expectations of how the Messiah was to fulfill the prophecies actually blinded him to the fact that the Messiah was fulfilling the prophecies. Preparation makes the event possible, but 
the event and the preparation are not the same thing. It's kind of like Barb's signs. The signs are not the thing. They point to the thing, right? So the sign that says don't swim can't actually make you not swim, but it gives you a warning of what kind of, of what could happen if you swim or stop just the, the sign itself doesn't make you stop, but you still need to stop. John has been preparing the way for the kingdom of the heavens to begin on earth, and what Jesus is doing does not sound to him like what the Old Testament prophets described. It doesn't sound, for example, the way our responsive reading describes it. You can look in your bulletin and, and take another look at that. The Old Testament prophets describe the Messiah's function in two ways. The Messiah is going to bless the people of God, and the Messiah is going to judge the enemies of God. Jesus' answer to John's disciples, and therefore to John, is brilliant and frustrating and tricky. He doesn't just come out and say, I am the Messiah, which I'm sure John would have preferred, because John was a straight shooter, and Jesus kind of isn't. Instead, Jesus summarizes everything he's been doing, and but his summary is kind of multi-purpose because it's a statement of facts. It's also, if we take Luke's gospel into account, it's also a description of what's happening in the moment, and it's a callback to at least four passages in the prophet Isaiah, all of which describe the promised Messiah doing exactly the things that Jesus is doing. Healing the sick, helping the lame walk, casting out demons, speaking the good news to the poor. Interestingly, though, all of those passages in Isaiah also, they talk about healing and good news, but they also talk about the Messiah bringing judgment. And it seems like this is the piece that John is like, where's that? So, Jesus actually does speak some judgment in this chapter, but it's not probably where John or his disciples or Jesus' disciples, although they're off on their mission trip right now, what any of them would have expected. Because the judgment that Jesus speaks in this chapter is on Jewish towns, including Capernaum, which is the one that Jesus has chosen as his home base where a whole bunch of his disciples are from. What about blessing the people of God? What about judgment on the enemies of God? In this chapter, Jesus says Sodom and Gomorrah have a better chance on the day of judgment than his own people and neighbors. That doesn't sound like a very patriotic Messiah. When we have been obedient to God, but we've also expected him to be like us and act like us, we may discover to our dismay that the blessings and judgments we thought we were preparing for him to give out are going to what seems to us like the wrong people. I think we can see, we can look back just on the last year and a half in our own country and in our churches in this country and say, yeah, there's a lot of people that we probably don't think should need to be blessed right now, or maybe need some judgment, and probably some of those people would think the same about us. There is, this is in our own nation, these are our people, and the wrong people seem to be getting blessed. 
It is really tempting for all of us who have any kind of relationship with God at all and know what he's brought us out of and know how our lives have changed and how we are trying to grow in righteousness to be to say, to ask questions like, well, but what about the people who, what about those people? Jesus in this statement, I think intentionally invites discomfort. What he's saying here is Sodom and Gomorrah, who were like the pinnacle of evil, immorality, violence, perversion, all kinds of things, they are in better shape than the towns among the chosen people. I don't really have a way to resolve that discomfort. I don't think Jesus really wanted us to be able to resolve it quickly. I think he often made uncomfortable statements to get us to wrestle basically with him. But there are some things that we can be sure about the kingdom of God. Basically two. The people of God are no longer necessarily who we thought they were, and the enemies of God are no longer necessarily who we thought they were. During the time of preparation, of which John the Baptist is the pinnacle, everything before him, all the way up to him, race, ethnicity, nationality, and religion mattered. Sometimes violence was even necessary. Verse 12 is a really confusing verse. Um, the translation that we had today was, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. I invite you to look this up later on a Bible app. Try like a dozen different interpretations. It sounds a little different in every single one. <laughs> and if you read about it in commentaries, most of them will say, so we don't exactly know what this means, but maybe kind of this. I think we can say that violence is not intended to be the heart of the kingdom of God, unlike basically every nation on earth, even ours. There were battles fought to establish this nation. And because of that, people will try to get into the kingdom of God or take down the kingdom of God using violence too. This is a fact. This is how it's been. And this is what um, was even part of the preparation. But the kingdom of God is a kingdom of peace. And the event is going to look different than the preparation. The Messiah, this is the other thing we can know about the kingdom of God. The Messiah is who we thought he was, Jesus. Jesus is the determining factor of whether you are the person of God or the enemy of God. Jesus was clear back in chapter 5 that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. That's the Old Testament. That's the preparation. That's everything that's come all the way up to John. But even though he's not abolishing them, true fulfillment is always more, always bigger, always more dimensional than the prediction. It's always more than the signs. The actual weather is always more and different than the weather reports, even if the weather reports are pretty accurate. The event is the point. The preparations are necessary, but they are not the point. They are what make the event possible. 
And with Jesus, not just Jesus when he comes back, but Jesus coming the first time, things are different now. And the reason we are at this point, at this point of fulfillment, the point of the main event, at the main point, the arrival of God's Messiah and the kingdom of the heavens, is because John the baptizer did such a good job preparing. And Jesus praises him. His disciples are starting to leave to go back and tell John what they already told John. And while they're walking away, Jesus starts to say, John was great. John is the fulfillment of the prophecies about Elijah returning. John has issued a call to repentance. John called out and challenged the sins of empire. John is the perfect example of the role of the Old Testament prophet, all of whom were, in their way, preparing the way for the Messiah by calling the nations to repentance, challenging the sins of empire, preparing the way for the Messiah through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. But John is the greatest because he has the privilege of preparing for and pointing to the Messiah more clearly and more directly and more certainly than any prophet before him. That's why Jesus says, who did you go in the desert to see? Not a king, not some fancy person, but a prophet and more than a prophet. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not yet arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The time of preparation is over. Jesus and John were related. John expected a family resemblance. There probably was a physical family resemblance. There were some personality resemblances too, but he expected a closer one that didn't actually need to be there because John was part of the old reality of preparation. Jesus is bringing in the new reality of fulfillment. And now that that new reality is actually here, it's here, we have a hard time seeing it because we often fall back into the preparation mode or even we get caught up in, in empire and our own sin nature. But fulfillment is here, at least in part, and the only way that people will know that fulfillment is here, that the kingdom of heaven is here, is if there is a family resemblance between us and Jesus. It's not that Jesus and his church look like us. It's that we and Jesus' church start to look more and more and more like him. Now anyone pointing to the Messiah, even the least person, as Jesus says, who testifies to Jesus' messianic goings-on in their lives, and the least person who is growing to look more like Jesus are greater than John. Guess what? That can be us. We're kind of least. We're still a small church. Uh, I don't think we've gone viral ever yet. <laughs> um, but we actually can be greater than John as we become more and more like Jesus and as we testify to his messianic work in our lives. Because we are doing this as citizens of the kingdom that has arrived. And because we know who the Messiah is. And because we are participating in the Messiah's work with him. And because we are becoming like him. Today, as we know, is American Independence Day. 
And as Ray shared with us, there were preparations, and the preparations led to independence and to celebrations that most of us are going to be having today and tomorrow, and we get a day off, and that's awesome. And yet, there are realities in this nation, which we've become more and more aware of the last year and a half, but also in all free nations, we're not the only free nation on earth, all nations have something in their history, something in their present that indicates that not everyone who is a citizen of that nation is really free. And violence has never fully gone away. It's also, though, Communion Sunday. And Communion reminds us of the violence that our sin and the sin of the world inflicted on our God and Messiah in order to usher in the kingdom of peace. Jesus didn't do the violence at all. It all happened to him. And because he allowed it to happen to him, because he allowed it to look like he was defeated, he actually triumphed over sin and death. Communion speaks of a greater freedom and a greater citizenship than any than that of America or any other heritage that we hold dear. Jesus kept doing his messianic goings-on all the way up to the cross, and still today, but at the cross, in what looked like an act of absolute failure, he cast judgment on both empire and death itself, so that any of us who acknowledge Jesus as king, as Messiah, can be blessed. Any of us can become citizens of an eternal kingdom. Any of us who increasingly think and talk and act and love like our king. Let's pray. Lord God, you are king. And you didn't seize it by force, your kingship. But you always were the rightful king. And we offer up our lives to you afresh. We want to live in the independence from sin and from empire that you paid the price for. And we want to offer it to others. We pray that we will be mindful of your sacrifice for us and of the freedom and reconciliation that you brought for us. Between us and you and between us and each other. For your glory and the world's good. In Jesus' name, amen.